0: I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on Complementary Interventions in Addiction. I am your host, Dr. Donnelly Snipes. In this presentation, we're really quickly, in the hour, going to explore various types of complementary therapies, which can be used in the treatment of chemical and behavioral addiction. Remember that each person is unique, and when people use substances in order to get the preferred effects from those substances, what has to happen? neurotransmitters have to be altered in, in in how how much or how little of them are available so we know that Alterations in neurotransmitters are ultimately one of the targets for treatment, helping the body naturally rebalance itself. But not everybody has the same biology. Some people, we've talked before in in pharmacology classes about the fact that um, psychopharmacology, your antidepressants and those sorts of things, only work for about 30 to 37% of the population. Why is that? Well, we don't completely know, but we know that there are there's a significant majority of the popu- population that will not completely respond to uh, psychotherapeutic interventions. So biology is one aspect. In addictions treatment, there's also the aspect of biology that if somebody had a pre-existing mental health issue if they had a pre-existing disruption in the balance of their neurotransmitters they may respond differently or they may need additional types of complementary approaches and really when we're talking about complementary we're getting outside the box and we're saying what can we do to help people stabilize their serotonin their norepinephrine their dopamine levels their GABA levels so they can feel energetic not overly energetic and but they can also regulate their emotion not everybody is willing to take medication so medication assisted therapy sounds great to some people but it sounds like a complete no-go to others and this include some of your psychotherapeutic medications like your antidepressant we need to be aware of that okay if we've got somebody who is just adamant that they are not going to take a pill of any sort um or an injection of any sort then what do we do to help them achieve recovery and each person's triggers for use are unique for some people if they were taking pill-based drugs then taking pills may be a trigger for use for other people if they were injecting then needles for example may be a trigger for use people are typically not going to want to expose themselves especially self-administer any treatments that may serve as a trigger. In this presentation, we're going to talk about complementary interventions that are the things that are added to, to complement uh, traditional counseling as well as medication-assisted therapy. We're not going to talk about medication-assisted therapy in this presentation. We already went over that a couple weeks ago. I'll start with my normal soapbox. When we're working with people who are in recovery, we know that their bodies need to heal. We know that some of the things that are contributing to their symptoms, whether it was caused by long-term use of a substance or they had a genetic predisposition or whatever the cause was, we know that a lot of people in early recovery have physiological issues that may contribute to their uh, mood symptoms, which may contribute to triggering a relapse. A lot of people, when they are experiencing significant dysphoria, feel like they can't tolerate that distress. So anger, anxiety, depression, grief, trauma, all of those things can be very triggering for people. Um, And any of those symptoms, people um, in early recovery should be screened for thyroid issues. Thyroid issues, if it's too high, can cause symptoms of anxiety, you know, it's kind of revving you up. Too low mimics the symptoms of depression. If somebody has a malfunctioning thyroid, no amount of antidepressants is going to help. And if one of the reasons they're using is to self-medicate their depression, and then we need to make sure that we're addressing that underlying issue. And it's not hard to screen for uh, thyroid hormones. That's a simple blood test. Uh, cardiovascular issues can also contribute to feelings of depression and in some people, anxiety, uh, When we're not getting enough oxygen, when we're not breathing deeply enough, when our blood's not circulating well enough because our heart is not pumping efficiently or well, um, then it can contribute to dizziness, fatigue, irritability. Um, There's a lot of symptoms of depression that mimic symptoms of cardiovascular issues. Likewise, when people have um, atrial fibrillation or other uh, some other heart issues where it feels like their heart is fluttering or skipping a beat or doing flip-flops. Uh, that can trigger anxiety in a lot of people. We want to pay attention because if the heart is not getting the oxygen and the nutrients throughout the body, we know you know there's a breakdown in the factory. Gonadal hormones. Uh, we know that significant ongoing stress, um, significant ongoing activation of the hpa axis which also can be caused by substance uh, addiction substance use and withdrawal that can trigger thyroid issues that can trigger hypothyroid typically that can cause cardiovascular issues and hardening of the arteries that can cause because of the hpa axis over activation alterations in the sex hormones testosterone estrogen progesterone All of those, any of those can contribute to mood. Chronic pain, a lot of people, even if they weren't abusing opioids, a lot of people have chronic pain. And if, especially if the person was abusing opioids or benzodiazepines, your anti-anxiety meds, then they may be more prone to experience more pain during that early recovery phase. We need to help them deal with those issues that they may have been self-medicating with their addictive behavior. Sleep apnea is typically not caused by long-term addiction use, long-term stress, et cetera, but we do know that sleep apnea contributes to clinical depression in a lot of people not hard to get screened for sleep apnea autoimmune and inflammatory issues inflammation especially systemic inflammation like we see in autoimmune conditions is significantly correlated with depression inflammation is also significantly correlated with pain pain and depression are significantly correlated with relapse We need to help people learn some stress management uh, tools, but also do what they can to address some of those autoimmune and inflammatory issues. And then finally, I've already kind of touched on this, mental health issues caused by neurochemical imbalances. if somebody has, for example, bipolar disorder and they are not stable on their medication, then when they are in a manic or a hypomanic episode, they may be more impulsive. Um, when they are in a depressive episode, they may be more tempted to self-medicate to feel better. So either end of the spectrum could be a a relapse trap. We do need to identify these. I don't. I call these concurrent more than complementary because uh, they are all, you know, your traditional uh, Western medicine approaches sort of things. But we do need to recognize that there are a lot of things that can contribute to people's underlying issues. So let's move on to what you are probably expecting and some of your more um, non-traditional treatments that are available acupuncture is one of the more widely used alternative therapies within the context of addiction and behavioral health treatment and this is according to the substance abuse and mental health service administration it is one of those practices that has even been embraced by a lot of uh, western medicine approaches i know we used to have an acupuncture team come into the clinic uh, the residential and iop uh, clinic twice per week And people were able to optionally get treatment. They didn't have to, but if they wanted to try, they could. Um, And interestingly, they were very sensitive, and we're going to get to the magnets in a a second. But since we did have a fair proportion of people who were also uh, injection drug users, the acupuncturists, when they came, were very sensitive to that, and they would bring something called seeds, which are little magnets that basically apply acupressure. They're magnets that go on the front side and the back side of the ear, and they they squeeze on that pressure point. Um, And obviously, magnets affect electrical conduction and everything as well. But It's important to recognize that not everybody is going to be okay with acupuncture because it may be triggering for them or they may just have a fear of needles. Acupressure um, can be used. Magnets can be used. Lasers, they've actually developed laser technology that penetrates below the skin to those uh, nerve areas and... Activates the meridians and then electroacupuncture. Now it does use needles, but they've experimented with this. It actually uses two needles in an area and uh, transmits a current between the two needles instead of like twisting the needles or or other technology that they use. Now I am not obviously extremely schooled on acupuncture or acupressure. There are articles in the classroom if you want to read more about it, but It is important to recognize that acupuncture has been proven repeatedly to help with a variety of uh, symptoms from addiction, including craving and withdrawal symptoms. Not totally. I mean, it doesn't completely eliminate withdrawal by any means, but it can help a lot with reducing nausea, for example. Um, It can help a lot with mood, and it actually has been shown to reduce cravings and Has been associated with a reduction in psychotic symptoms. So, how awesome is that? We know that uh, a lot of our atypical antipsychotics and our antipsychotics have significant side effect profiles. If somebody is able to get a certain amount of relief with acupuncture, that might be super helpful. Acupuncture and acupressure are both well established therapies for pain management, everything from myofacial pain to. Uh, you know, low back pain. It's also uh, been established for a variety of Uh, different mental health issues, smoking cessation. It's been tried with a variety of different um, drugs, you know, people who are trying to quit a variety of different drugs. So there's a lot of research out there. Clinical trials, interestingly enough, I found out um, when I was doing some more research this morning, clinical trials are currently underway for treatment of trauma. A lot of people who have traumatic memories avoid those traumatic memories. And because acupuncture if it you stimulate the right meridians um, it actually connects with the amygdala um, and as much as i know i'm sorry um, they're thinking that they may be able to help address that fear response and address some of that that learned fear anyhow so acupuncture has a lot of options that are available acupressure as well there are also and I don't know how well they work. They're not like those FDA approved sort of things. I know some people are offering online uh, some of the acupuncture lasers. Like I said, I don't know how well they work, but it would be interesting to take a look at. So what do we know about acupuncture? I've talked about you know what it possibly can do, but how does it do it? Acupoints are singular areas in the skin that have been identified as being the external accessible places related to internal organs. Manual acupuncture, which is using the needles, activates nerve signaling, partici- particularly when the muscle tissue is injured locally by needling so there's little tiny needles that they put in obviously that is, registers as as damage this causes the release of pro-inflammatory mediators such as histamine and guess what our favorite 5-ht 5-ht which is serotonin so that's kind of interesting when somebody is initially stuck with the needle it causes the release of pro-inflammatory mediators, it increases circulation to that area. And one of the things that they talk about in um, traditional Chinese medicine, for example, is making sure that the qi can flow through the body. And by causing that damage, you're increasing circulation to that area, which might be helpful. Think about if you've ever had a clog uh, somewhere and you've turned on the water hard enough to push it out of the way. kind of how i think about it but that may be one way to um, help the body eliminate blockages in the meridians in electroacupuncture depending on the frequency of the electric shock um, it activates the nerves without tissue damage Um, you know it's not they're not shocking them enough to like burn the skin or anything enabling the pain modulation and which increases several neurotransmitters, including the endogenous opioids, which is one of the reasons that a lot of people use substances is for that high that's produced by the endogenous opioids. The endogenous opioids also address pain. We know that. So they've got a double, double whammy there. And if one of the reasons they're using is for pain, you know, that's helpful. And serotonin. Serotonin is... Increase which helps the person theoretically in this particular case, uh, it's the serotonin receptors that are supposed to help with pain modulation and relaxation. And dopamine is also thought to be increased during acupuncture or acupressure. We know that you know, for the longest time, we've talked about dopamine being a uh, neurochemical that's involved in the addiction process. So, acupuncture, acupressure that's out there, it's well studied. Right now I'll tell you it is one of the only ones that is well studied as a um, complementary or an alternative treatment. Now there is there are things out there for chiropractics and massage and things like that. Those are more for pain management and helping people relax. You could argue that chiropractic Chiropractics has some other benefits. I couldn't find any articles on that, so I left that one off of this uh, presentation. If you know a chiropractor who, you know, has done um, work with people who are in recovery who wants to talk about it, you know, send them my way. Anyhow, brain modulation. This is a new field that is becoming more and more popular. And Well, not new. They had electroconvulsive therapy way back in in the day um you know we've really largely gotten away from ect and the ect of today is a kinder gentler ect however what we're talking about here is uh, our four different things transcranial magnetic stimulation or tms you've probably heard of it if you're in one of the bigger cities like nashville there are a lot of tms clinics that are popping up around eeg and fmri neurofeedback that's A relatively, um, not new, but it it is a treatment that is, is more prominent. doesn't require, especially the EEG part, does not require all of the expensive equipment that the fMRI or the TMS require. And deep brain stimulation, which is invasive, that's when they implant the electrodes in people's brains. What do we know about these? Well, there's some limited evidence out there, but the studies are really small sample sizes, case studies, um, sort of anecdotal at best. It's showing some, they're showing some promise, but there isn't enough information out there on any of these to say, oh yeah, that's something that we have to add to our, our treatment program offering. But let's talk about them real quick because as research progresses uh they may be something that you want to keep an eye on transcranial man- magnetic stimulation has shown some promise for reducing cravings in the short term and with this they put um, magnets on the scalp and stimulate the brain through the magnet now eeg is when they put the electrodes on, on your head and they monitor the electrical activity within your brain. So, you know, that's something we've been doing for a long time. With EEG neurofeedback, though, patients learn to modulate their own brain activity through feedback from the EEG machine. So they when they start to get upset, they see certain areas of their brain light up. And when they use their distress tolerance skills, their coping skills, they actually see different areas of their brain light up and the amygdala and some of those other fear stress areas um, darken again. So they can learn to modulate their own brain activity. They can learn to physiologically dysregulate or re-regulate when they become emotionally dysregulated. Um, So that's really it's really fascinating. These um, the, these machines are not cheap. You know, you're not just going to go down to or go online and order one really, really quickly. But it is an extremely useful tool for people who have difficulty, especially with uh, emotional regulation. It is an extremely useful tool. We'll talk about an alternative to that, you know, the cheap alternative in a minute. Um, And then deep brain stimulation in the case studies, they have reported prolonged abstinence from opioids or alcohol um, with ventral striatal application of the deep brain stimulation. That is very difficult to get people to volunteer for because most people don't want stuff implanted in their brain. But there have been a few case studies. Now biofeedback, if you can't afford the EEG and there's nowhere in your county that offers it where patients can go get it, um, or even if you just want to add a layman's alternative, and that's really what this is with biofeedback, they can use a fitness watch or a heart rate monitor as well as their respiration rate. You can get one of those little um, uh, finger monitors um, to monitor the pulse as well. In order to learn how to modulate their physiological stress reaction, when people slow their breathing, their heart rate naturally slows. When you slow your breathing, it triggers what they call rest and digest, um, encouraging people to become more aware of when their heart rate is kind of creeping up and be able to re-regulate it before it's in full-blown panic attack can be really helpful there have been a lot of studies that have found that biofeedback can help people reduce their systemic hyper arousal they also increase their feelings of control over their emotions and urges they start feeling you know anxious that and part of that's with a craving they feel anxious and hyped up that i really i i feel like i need to go have that right now when they use the biofeedback when they practice slowing their breathing when they practice slowing their heart rate down and relaxing it triggers that gaba it triggers the serotonin so people start to feel less anxious when gaba and certain serotonins go up your dopamine is going to go down your dopamine is your craving chemical so that's cool and people start to feel like okay I can tolerate this i don't have to feel out of control they've also found that there's altered information flow from the prefrontal cortex which is where we do our higher order thinking it's impulse control all that's up here to the default mode in the wakeful rest so instead of the prefrontal cortex saying hey get out of wakeful rest you need to wake up you need to be stimulated uh, the information changes and and it starts going back to that default mode where it says, okay, you can chill out. You can be daydreaming. You can be relaxing right now. You don't have to be extremely hypervigilant, which I thought was kind of interesting, but it makes sense when we use biofeedback, we trigger that rest and digest. And we're not, I mean, if, if you're focusing on what you're you're breathing, if you're focusing on your heart rate, you're not focused on other things. You're not focused on what's stressing you out. So it makes sense that your relaxation response would kick in. CBD. Now that's another one of those new buzzwords um, or buzz treatments, whatever you want to call it out there right now. There is a growing body of preclinical and clinical evidence to support the use of CBD oils for many conditions, suggesting its potential role as another option for treating challenging chronic pain or addiction they've also found it to be helpful for people with depression and anxiety now let's think about it remember in in marijuana and cannabis you have thc which is the psychoactive and then you have cbd which is relatively non-psychoactive when you buy cbd oil um, or cbd oils they are supposed to be um absent of any thc so you're not getting the psychogen um, uh, psychogenic effects of thc what you're getting is the uh, cannabidiol which can go into the brain and trigger those cannabinoid receptors those receptors that help you feel more relaxed those receptors that help you deal with pain Um, you're not but you're not getting high you're not having the um, thc effect from it so there is some benefit to it Now. I say that, but it's also important to remember that CBD oil can does alter certain neurotransmitters, and it is not recommended to be used in conjunction with other psychotropic medications. And it does interact with like most other medications. So people who are wanting the oil, uh, number one, need to make sure that they get it from a reputable source that theoretically has done some purity testing to make sure that there's no THC in it or very very little and they need to do it ideally under a doctor's supervision because it can you know wreak havoc with other medications so that's my little warning there um, it It is an interesting natural alternative for people, again, who don't want to take medications. They don't want to take pills. Uh, CBD oil might be an alternative for some people. Uh, CBD, interestingly enough, when people take stimulants like methamphetamine or cocaine, we know that ramps up the HPA axis, the threat response system. We know that cortisol and glutamate are dumped to prepare us to fight or flee. That's part of that excitatory response. We know that when glutamate levels get too high in the brain, it creates what's called an excitotoxic environment. When that happens, we actually are killing brain cells. (laughs) So it becomes a bad situation. CBD actually prevents drug-induced neuroadaptations. It helps buffer that excitotoxicity, which is kind of interesting. Now, I'm not saying that people should add this to their regimen of drug use. No, by all means, we don't want to do that. But it has shown in people in recovery to reverse cognitive deficits and alleviate symptoms of comorbid mental health issues like anxiety and depression. So, if it can reverse cognitive deficits, then theoretically maybe even after somebody quits using, it can help repair and I'm just speculating here, it can help repair some of those drug-induced neuroadaptations. We also know that as a person goes through recovery in time, you know, a year or so once they get through that post-acute withdrawal phase, you know, their brain starts remodeling You know, when they were using, it created more synapses and remodeled itself in order to handle the onslaught of all those drugs. Um, When they withdraw, then eventually the brain gets the message that, oh, okay, we don't need all these extra receptors up here anymore. So we can, you know, take those down. So it remodels itself again, theoretically back to its original state, we can hope. Light therapy is another one that we don't really think of a lot, but it is so important. Light therapy helps set reset circadian rhythm. And if you are in the middle of Alaska or if you are in the middle of Florida, um, light is important, but not all the time. Our body needs dark hours too. And it's important to be aware of that wherever you're at. I can't imagine in Alaska when it never actually gets truly dark, um, how that must affect people's circadian rhythms you know it's really important when they go to sleep for example in alaska when they've got the you know 24-hour daytime to be able to block out any light to sleep with light um sleep masks or something so their brain gets the message that hey this is the sleep time i digress circadian rhythms are responsible for controlling our sleep cycles when the melatonin secreted how long we you know helping us get good quality deep sleep to clear out the adenosine so we can concentrate and focus and have energy. All of those are symptoms of depression when they're out of whack. Um, It controls our hunger when we want to eat and our our hunger and satiation hormones are also regulated by our circadian rhythms to a certain extent, which is why, you know, some of us, our body, if we eat about the same time every day, our body kind of learns when that time is. That's the circadian rhythm. That's your body saying, okay, it's time to And cortisol levels are controlled by the circadian rhythms. And we don't want too much cortisol, but we need some to help us want to get out of bed. When we've got somebody who is in um, early recovery, a lot of times they have not been regulating their circadian rhythms very well they may have been staying up into the wee hours of the morning they may have been staying in dark places all day long you know whatever most people when they come to treatment uh, often have really out of whack circadian rhythms so this is something that can be very helpful we also know that with light therapy uh, people have improved mood and that if you're using bright light therapy, like a light box, that's not ending the vitamin D. So we do know that there's something about regulating those circadian rhythms that also helps with mood and to stave off se- seasonal affective disorder. Sunlight. Now, if you can get out and get sunlight, that increases vitamin D naturally. Vitamin D has been shown to improve mood, reduce inflammation. That's the, there's that inflammation again and regulate circadian rhythms. And part of the reason that vitamin D may help improve mood is because it reduces inflammation. But, you know, I'll take it. And in answer to your question, Laura, uh, they've found that five to 15 minutes of sunlight twice a day uh, is plenty to get enough vitamin d and it doesn't especially it doesn't have to be during those really high UV times like 9 a.m to 3 p.m you know you can do it a lot of people get all their vitamin d when they're walking to their car and to their office in the morning and then you know vice versa when they get home and when they're outside you know driving you get sun on your arm for example when you're driving Yeah, you're not getting it all over your body, but it's going through your skin. It's triggering that melanin to do its thing. Even just getting out can be helpful. You don't need to bask in it. Hypnosis. Some studies have shown decreased craving via hypnotic aversion suggestions through top-down regulation of the prefrontal cortex as evidenced through MRIs. Uh, So basically, under hypnosis, when an aversive uh, suggestion is implanted, if you want to say that, um, that suggestion is triggered in the prefrontal cortex where we make our higher order thinking, where we control our impulses and everything. And when somebody's had that uh, suggestion implanted and then they're faced with it, let's say nicotine, and then they're faced with the option of having a cigarette, prefrontal cortex lights up and says, oh no, I don't, I don't want that. That's nasty. And so it triggers the body's aversion response, which I think is really interesting. Hypnosis has been used, again, um, in a lot of different things. For pain control, they use um, hypnosis in women when they're giving, uh, when they're giving birth. Uh, So hypnosis definitely has its place. Hypnosis is one of those things in many states. I wish it were in all states, but in many states, it is regulated. It's a licensed practice. You can't just pick up a book. And learn how to do hypnosis you know that can be not helpful um, at the very least and harmful at the very worst uh, people who practice hypnosis have had significant training on how to do it how to do it safely and what needs to happen how to actually create this um, hypnotic aversion uh, in the context of treatment now lastly we're going to talk a little bit about kratom Kratom is a really popular topic right now, and it's important to talk about it. You know, I want to put it out there because some people are still using kratom to self detox from opioids or alcohol. Currently, not a medically approved approach. And, you know, if you go online, if you look for kratom and you look for detox, you will find information about it. You will find people are doing it. The people who are believers in kratom are very fervent believers and they believe it's safe. They believe it is, you know, the thing they believe it is the best option. The research is slim at best out there. Um, so are we saying that it is horrible to use? Um, you know, some people have used it safely, but currently it is not a medically approved approach. Kratom can cause effects similar to both opioids, the pain control and stimulants. So it can produce sedation, pleasure and decreased pain. It depends on the dose that the person is taking. Um, at a lower dose, it will, you know, decrease pain and also make them feel more energized. At higher doses, it produces sedation. It is not illegal in the U.S. and not regulated for... Per- purity or potency by the FDA, which means you don't really know what you're getting. Uh, when you order Kratom, it's like a lot of things that are over-the-counter supplements that you're taking. They are not regulated for potency or purity. And uh, so, so you could take one dose and get X amount and take another dose and get 10 times that amount because, you know, there wasn't a um, a lot of regulation. That is one of the biggest concerns from what I was reading on the FDA's website. That was one of the biggest concerns from the FDA is that number one, people are self-administering and uh, that could be dangerous in and of itself. Detoxic, detoxification from opioids typically not life-threatening. Detoxification from alcohol can very quickly become life-threatening. And what, if people are trying to detox themselves, they may not see some of the early warning signs. So, you know, that's something to be aware of. But if you're taking the Kratom and you take something, a dose that happens to have a lot more kratom in it than you were expecting it can cause undue sedation kratom takes effect after five to ten minutes and the effects last for two to five hours in animals it appears to be more potent than morphine so let's think about that if you're taking something that's more po- more potent than morphine and we know all the problems that Uh, with addiction that we have to morphine and your other opioids then let's think about whether kratom has addictive potential yes it does kratom is going in there and messing with those neurotransmitters and and again i say i know there are people out there who are firm believers and they love this stuff Um, and it's available it's not illegal however um it's dangerous it's one of those things that's kind of dangerous to, to play around with, especially if the person is detoxing from alcohol or on any other kinds of medications that someone could be on. Addiction is a biopsychosocial condition. When we are working with people, when we talk about, well, when I talk about complementary interventions, I am talking about using an integrative approach to complement. Um, for example, if somebody has hypothyroid, addiction, and depression, we are going to want to multiple different things. We're going to need to uh, help them get their thyroid levels, you know, regulated, and that may help with their mood. But they're also probably going to need talk therapy um, you know cognitive behavioral whatever you use in order to help them address some of their addiction and and depression issues no single treatment or in event or intervention is likely sufficient for sustained recovery having somebody who is has a problem with addiction and saying okay just Go to 12-step meetings or just go to talk therapy or just take medication assisted therapy that's likely not going to cut it because addiction impacts the body it impacts our thinking it impacts our emotions or our neurotransmitter levels which impact our emotions. it impacts our relationships it impacts our finances you know there are a lot of things that get impacted by addiction so it's very unlikely that we can just throw one thing at it and say, okay, you know, this will work. It's also very unlikely, even more unlikely, that we're going to find any treatment that works for every person. We need to be very sensitive to people's individual needs. Many complementary therapies help rebalance neurotransmitters and the central nervous system, which, you know, issues here often underlie craving and withdrawal symptoms and mood issues, which the person is self-medicating remember when people use it, they're taking a toxin to their body. Their body body registers this as a threat, activates that HPA axis Um, a lot of times. uh, Your depressants are going to to slow it, but your body alters the neurochemicals significantly in response to the drug that's being taken. When that drug leaves the system, uh, the body doesn't, respond by automatically ramping back up its own production so the person feels withdrawal symptoms and because of what's causing those withdrawal symptoms is largely a an imbalance in neurotransmitters then we're also not unexpectedly going to current mood symptoms because when neurotransmitters are not in balance we have symptoms many therapies can be used in conjunction you don't have to use just one matter of fact like i said a lot of times i'll have three or four things that people are are doing um, to address the myriad of underlying issues contributing to relapse risk depression anxiety low self-efficacy insomnia um and fatigue, and pain. So those are all issues that may need to be addressed um, in people when they are in early recovery, when they're in recovery, and we may need to use complementary intervention. Talk therapy or medication assisted therapy, or the two of them combined, are probably not going to enough handle everything. Are there any questions okay i will go in in a minute and look at that error message that you're getting oh can i explain tens transcutaneous electronic nerve stimulation one of my favorites um you can actually you actually can get really good tens units um, over the counter now which is nice um you put little electrodes on and you've got a little battery operated pack that's attached to it. When you turn on the battery operated pack, it sends little electrical pulses through the electrodes by bombarding the um, the nerve endings with the, the stimulation. And it, it just feels like somebody's tapping on you. It doesn't hurt a bit. It... Blocks the uh, pain signals from going to the brain and it helps the muscles relax. So, tens for a musculoskeletal pain, tens units can be super helpful for people. Um, obviously, you know, it's technically a medical device, they need to be advised to consult with their physician, however, it is one of those things that you can get online you can get it i think you can even get some at stores like target and walmart and stuff now too so those are um that is an option for people who have chronic musculoskeletal pain now if they have uh nerve-based pain it's not going to do a daggum thing for it probably Um, it may but a lot of times it's hard to find the point to stimulate for nerve-based pain great question. how can the training of medical professionals increase awareness of addiction issues to work with treatment programs? <laughs> They've got to be willing. Um, and that's been one of my big complaints for many years, that we really don't teach much about addiction, despite the fact that if you include um, smoking, eating disorders, gambling um, in, in the addictive category... Uh, you know, you've got a majority of people that you're seeing in in clinic who probably have some level of uh, addictive behaviors. I wish they would start offering more. Um, Making it available in continuing education obviously is one approach to encouraging medical professionals to uh, be more aware. And part of it is just reducing the stigma because a lot of, professionals, not just medical professionals, a lot of professionals still somewhere in the back of their mind ascribe to the moral model of addiction and believe that it is a moral failure or it's a choice or it's a lack of willpower. And we really need to overcome that to help them understand that uh, there is a physiological, a significant physiological component to it. Um, So That's the long version of I'm not sure how to increase their training early on, but making them aware and educating our clients is also really important. I had one client, for example, I was working with who had um, an addiction issue, but was also struggling a lot with depression and, interestingly enough, erectile dysfunction. And uh, turns out that. Erectile dysfunction, dopamine is actually involved in, to a certain extent, in ED. So, you know, encouraging him to go back and talk to his doctor about, and he also had restless legs, um, encouraging him to talk with his doctor about what was going on and also inform his doctor about his addiction issues, to give the doctor the full perspective, Um, I think that helped. I mean, the doctor was very open to the notion that some of the addiction, uh, addictive behaviors may have been a form of self-medication for this uh, lack of um, dopamine that was causing the erectile dysfunction. And the restless legs turned out uh, once he was on a, an antidepressant um, and his anxiety levels went down. Restless legs seemed to be more of an anxiety thing than actual truly restless leg syndrome. So it was an interesting exercise for all of us, but patients sometimes have to advocate for themselves with their doctors and that will spur the doctor's on to do a little bit of research. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash